The prophetic conference was interesting, wasn't it? You know, the way I described it to somebody, it's like when there's a flood in a building, you can tell where the water level was because it leaves a line. Are you with me? There's a mark that you know that there was, there was water here and there's a line that's left. If you've ever lived through a flood like that, you know it to be true. But let me just tell you, there's a line that's been left. There is a high watermark of the Holy Ghost that I don't want to fade out any time in the near future. Hear me, hear me well. Amen. Because it's so easy to step away from a great conference like that and just say, man, that was a great moment. We can go back and listen to the podcast or watch the videos and we can perhaps try to recover a piece of it. But the reality was, if you weren't there, you weren't there. But I am believing that beyond just the moment that we had a couple of weekends ago, that God is putting some things in place and in motion. Come on. That that proved to be something catalytic, that something we can carry forth in our lives, Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, and on and on. Somebody say amen and agree with me quickly here. To that end, for the next couple of months, we're going to be right here on Wednesday nights doing a series entitled Contending for the Power. Contending for the Power. Unashamedly. Pastor Brett said this in, in, in the message that he spoke. Powerful. You know, there are many things that set the church apart. But the reality is the one thing that's unique and distinct that the church has that no other gathering of people have anywhere on the planet is the power of God. Miracles, signs, wonders, the tangible presence of God in our midst. You know, you can get great gatherings of people and they have wonderful entertainment. They've got great lights. They've got nice people. They've got competent communicators. But what they don't have, as Moses said, God, unless you go with us, don't send us. What else will mark us from the other peoples on the planet unless you go with us? And to that end, I want us to contend for the power. And not just for the sake of what can I get out of it. Because I believe that God is glorified when he shows up. When God shows up to show off, God gets glorified among his people. Amen? Amen. And we're going to be looking at, and we've got a number of great presenters that are going to be sharing from this pulpit over the next few weeks. And we're going to look at the power to save. How many of you know that it takes God's empowerment to do everything that we do? I was talking with someone just this afternoon. How many times if we would just get to the end first and just say, God, I can't. Not God, I want. There's a big difference in those two statements. I want has to do with a matter of the will. It's rebellion. But we get to the place early on that we just say, God, I can't unless you do it. Most of the time, what triggers the I can't is after this long series of events that finally drive us to a place of failure and we throw our hands up and then we go find God. What would happen if we would just get to the beginning of the thing earlier 
and just say, God, if you don't do it, it ain't going to happen. God, I can't. You have to. Amen? And so the things that God has to empower us for, the power to be saved, you can't do it. The power to reconcile. Do you realize you have to be empowered by God to forgive? Man, it would be great if it were just a soul exercise. It's not. Every one of us in this room have been hurt somewhere by somebody so badly. And we know we should do it. But everything in us, we just praise the Lord. And you just would, I just (laughs) bless you, brother. And in your heart, you're just saying, God, I wish his head would fall off. And we realize that Jesus has got to do, he's got to empower us. Come on. To forgive that person. The power to overcome. God's power to provide. The power to change. You can't change yourself. Keep on trying. You can keto diet yourself to death. But the issue is the fruit of the spirit of self-control. The Holy Ghost has got to do something that says, put the donut down. (laughs) The power to change, the power to heal, and yes, the power to love. We have to be empowered to love the way that God loved. That's what we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks together. But tonight, by way of introduction... I want to talk about preparing the soil for the supernatural. Preparing the soil for the supernatural. Now, every good gardener, every farmer understands and works very, very hard to work the soil in such a way that it's the most conducive to receive the seed once it goes in. I mean, they go in there and they plow and they till and they put certain things in the soil and, and they're, they're working very, very hard to provide the best environment that they possibly can. So when that seed goes in that soil, it has the best opportunity to reach the full potential of what's inside of that seed. And if that soil is not all that it needs to be, the potential of that seed can often be compromised. Doesn't mean that the seed won't grow. Doesn't mean that it won't come up and grow to some level of maturity, but it will never be all that it could be. Now, how many of you know that God's word, the seed of God's word, it's good seed? Hello? Now, we know the parable of the seed and the soil and, and, and the seed and the soil and the, and the condition of the soil and all of that. But let me just say to you that the word of God is powerful enough. It's going to accomplish itself irrespective of the soil that it finds itself in because God is God. Hello? What you and I want to do, though, is we don't want to make it difficult for God to do something when that seed gets sown into your life or in my life. When we hear that word, when that prophetic promise comes to us, when that rhema word comes up out of that Bible and says, this is your seed, put it in good soil. We want to do everything we can to let the potential of that word come forth in our life in the season that God intends. Now, 
As we start talk about, we begin to talk about soil, we immediately begin to think, because we're all good Pentecostals here. I'm not a Pentecostal, keep thinking. But the reality is, we think faith immediately. And we've developed a pretty, a pretty extensive theology about faith. And faith being the ideal environment, it being the soil whereby which when the word of God goes in, when it's combined with faith, something explosive happens. Now, I'm not here to negate that. It's true. We've heard it and heard it and heard it. But one of the speakers, I think it was Jim LaFoon at the prophetic conference, kind of challenged us with this concept and really kind of put a question out there. Is it really faith? that really in any way hinders or inhibits the word of God from going forth and accomplishing its purposes on the planet? Interesting question. Well, then that sent me into another series of questions when I heard that, okay, if faith then is not the only soil that we need to tend, what are the other conditions of the soil that we need to contend for to prepare for the supernatural to be released in our life. Hmm. Matthew 13, you remember this. Jesus had come back home beginning to do some miracles and preaching and teaching and everything. And everybody was like, wait a minute. Who is this? I, I know him. I, I used to have to run him off my doorstep. He used to steal apples off my tree. Climbing my olive tree. I remember that kid. That's Joseph boy. They took offense at him. Where did he get all this from? And Jesus said, and he says they, they, they took offense because this is not what this, is, this, this guy is supposed to be doing. And Jesus said only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Then he goes on in verse 58 of Matthew 13. What did he say? He did not do what? Come on, you know this. Many miracles there. Why? Because of their lack of faith or their unbelief. Absolutely. Now we look at that and say, okay, well, Pastor Jim, that's an absolute great proof text that faith limits what God can do. But please notice it doesn't say Jesus didn't do any miracles there. It just says he didn't do what? Many miracles there. So even though that there was a decided lack of faith, it still did not shut down the purposes of God from going forth. Hmm. You know, I, as I look through Scripture, I don't find many situations. As a matter of fact, I really don't find but two where we find Jesus describing great faith. And in both of the cases, it had to do with a parent contending for a sick child. I have not found such great faith, he spoke to the centurion. Great faith. But you don't see Jesus talking about a lot of great faith. What you do find, though, is quite a few times Jesus rebuking those closest to him for their what? For their lack thereof. So let's reconsider this just for a moment tonight. Because most often we find Jesus doing the miraculous in spite of 
rather than because of? And could it be that the place of his ability and availability is directly connected to our inability? How quickly we get to that place. Turn your Bible to the book of 2 Chronicles for a moment. I want to come, come around this tonight fairly unusual way. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And what we find here is a nation in crisis. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, has a report that's come to him. This is not the kind of intel that you want to be getting. 2 Chronicles 20. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army. First of all, you don't want to hear army. And secondly, you definitely don't want to hear vast. It's coming against you from Edom, the other side of the sea. It's already in all of these places. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat, look at this posture now. He stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the nude courtyard and said this. O Lord God, our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they've lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress. And you will hear us and save us. But now, hear a man from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them that did not destroy them. And see how they are repaying us now by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as in our inheritance. God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Verse 13, it says, All the men of Judah... With their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. This wasn't just a meeting of the council elders, the security council. This wasn't a closed door meeting. These were families, these were children, wives being apprised of their condition. In verse 14, I love this. And after this declaration of inability, we find the word then. Interesting. Then. It says a prophet got up and began to prophesy. Verse 15, he said, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah, this is what God says, don't be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. It's interesting that he doesn't try to say it's not what, what a thing is not. It's still a vast army and they're still coming for you. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the edge of the desert of Jeruel. And you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. 
O Judah and Jerusalem, and do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, go out, face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Now keep reading. I know this is a long passage, but stay with me. It says, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And then some Levites stood up and began to praise God with very loud voices. Let me draw out what I believe is a real essence of the soil of the supernatural. I believe it's humility. There's something about humility that draws God. And let me just say that it's our inability. It's our inability with a recognition of his ability that the combination of those two things produces something in the human called humility. Of I can't, but he can. That there is no way, but in God there is a way. It's a right assessment of condition. You ever seen folk under the guise of faith and they would somehow try to confess it away? I mean, horrible stuff coming out of their nose and their eyes. You know, praise the Lord. How you doing, brother? I'm healed. You sure don't look healed. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Give me a hug. I'll wait on that. Really. And many of us, we're afraid that if we make a right assessment of condition, somehow it's going to run God off because somehow it's a negative confession that somehow God's afraid of. How many of you know God is never afraid of truth? He's never afraid of a right assessment of condition. God, this vast army. Oh my goodness. And a right assessment of condition, it's not a sign of defect. It's a manifestation of design. God is setting up a moment. Come on. Weakness, yes. And but look what they did. First of all, it was remembrance of past faithfulness. God, you did all these things in the past. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land? How many of you know in the right assessment of condition, many times it's a, it's a, it's a step backwards and saying, but God, you did. We've watched you before. Maybe I've not been in this exact place, in this exact condition, but God, I've watched your faithfulness in the past. I've watched you fulfill your promises in the past. And so rather than starting out with a, I need, I need, I need, there's a moment of remembrance. God, this is what you did. And then there's this joyful acknowledgement And please, please notice here my adjective. Joyful acknowledgement, uh uh-oh, of inability and insufficiency. You know, we, we see sometimes our inability as this very awful thing. Ugh, I'm not this, I'm not that. And God says, I know. I know I made that hole in you. I brought you to this very place where you couldn't conjure this up. You couldn't make this happen. You know, the thing that the doctors are chasing around in your body right now in that they haven't been able, 
yeah, I, I, I did this. And we say, wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to just bind and rebuke and loose and smack and talk in tongues and run that thing off. Sometimes. But other times, it's a place of our own inability and insufficiency where God is waiting for us to come to a joyful acknowledgement that he is setting the table to come show up and dine with us. Here are these men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. God, will you not do something here? And it's, it's in this wonderful moment of remembrance, a right assessment of condition, that it leads us very quickly to refocus. I love this. We do not know what to do, but, come on, our eyes are upon you. All of a sudden now, we, the, the, the whole thing moves from us. It moves from our condition. We don't know what to do, but we're going to take our eyes off of the mirror for a moment. We're going to take our eyes off of this vast army we've heard about. We're going to take our eyes off of these escalating cholesterol numbers. We're going to take our eyes off of the stock market. We're going to take our eyes off of everything else, but we put our eyes on you. We're going we're gonna to get refocused away from whatever this condition and situation is. Our eyes are upon you. We still don't have any real answers yet. Come on. We don't have any real answers. Because see, when we get refocused from us to him, it contextualizes miracle circumstances. It takes the whys out of the equation. Come on. I mean, isn't that where the enemy wants to get us when we get jammed up? Why am I here? The same way that the sisters came to Jesus. Where were, where were you? My brother, would, he would have died if you'd been here. In that moment, Jesus wept. What was he, what was he weeping? I've heard so many, so many different takes on that. He was, he was overwhelmed at their lack of faith. He was overwhelmed at the emotion of the moment. Who knows why he wept? But we get recontextualized when we get refocused. John 9, who sinned? This man's father or mother that he would be born blind? Neither one. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Wow. And in that refocus is a right reception, recognition, and position. And I love this, verse 17. You will not have to fight this battle. I love that. But this is what's interesting. It didn't say you could stay home and play Nintendo. It says, take up what? Your positions. There is still a position that God has for you and for me. This is, this is not just a passive watching from the sidelines. This is an active participation as we take the position that God has called us to take. Take your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. I wish I could just take 
an hour and unpack this whole thing because there's so much in here for us. It says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Go out, face them, and what? The Lord will be, will be with you. How we receive. And then to whom we give the honor and the glory preemptively. I mean, before God had done all these wonderful things, the next day, you read the rest of the story. It says, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground. All the people fell down in worship. And then the Levites kick in and the worship team shows up. They don't just begin to worship after the fact. They begin to worship before the fact. Let me just tell you, preemptive worship, that's real worship. You know, it's easy to worship when the money's in the bank, when the doctor's report is back in, when our bodies don't hurt anymore and our wife loves us again. Man, let me tell you, that, that's an easy moment that we can get our praise on. But let me just tell you, when you can begin to worship preemptively about a thing, that's when you know that you're in relationship. And humility, it gets produced from our inability. Naaman, I thought the man of God would. I mean, I'm somebody. Don't send, don't send your executive assistant out here. Don't send, don't send your associate, your assistant manager out. I want to see the guy in charge because I'm the man in charge. Ever thought about what that was all about? Humility. Humility. I want you, I want you in that dirty river. And I'm not talking about just splash around one time. Seven times, son. Get on down in there. Humility. And Jesus modeled it. He modeled it. He came in the form, not of a conquering king. He came as a servant. Matthew 11, take my yoke, learn from me. Why? What does it say? I am gentle and what? Humble in heart. Jesus there, I mean, Peter whacking off ears and I mean, hanging on the cross in the toss. In any moment, all Jesus had to do was just blink, if you wish, just an anthropomorphic eyelid to just summon everything in the heavenlies that was waiting. Just, can you imagine? I mean, it'd be like the last of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one. Just wait, let us. Please, let us out this. And yet Jesus, he didn't do it. He was modeling something for you and me. He was modeling weakness. He was modeling humility. Hmm. Sunday we sang one of the great hymns of the faith. In the first verse, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Child of weakness. How much we talk about sonship, inheritance, the rights of sons. 
But can we embrace being a child of weakness? Can we come back to that place even as the disciples were trying to, to handle Jesus and keep the little children from him? And what did he say? Suffer not. Because unless you become like one of these, you ain't coming into nothing. Well, what is the one thing that marks children? Humility. You know what? Children are not all janked up about what they can't do. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're four years old. I mean, they're going to, they, they don't get all mad. I can't drive a car. My four-year-old granddaughter is not messed up because she can't drive a car. She doesn't feel in any way damaged or discriminated against her. She can't drive a car yet. But she's enjoying what she can do. She's reveling in her inability. She's enjoying her childhood. How many of us continue to fight against it? And yet Jesus continuing to say, come to me that way. Don't just come to me with all your gifts and abilities and, you know, all, all, your, all, you know, all your degrees and everything that you've done, all your attaboys. I just want you. Our inabilities. Wow. 2 Corinthians 13. I'll close with this. For to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. What a paradox. But that's the life of faith. And I believe that it's in this humility that I believe is part and parcel of the soil of receiving the supernatural. Of that which we can joyfully acknowledge, God, I can't, the doctors can't, my accountant can't, the government can't, the education system can't. But it's in that place of humility that say, God, our eyes are upon you. Pray with me. Lord, tonight... Let us freshly till the soil for the supernatural to come forth in this house. Lord, that we can embrace our inability and our insufficiency and our humility the same way that a very powerful king stood in front of an entire nation and said, God, we have no power. Our eyes are upon you. Lord, we declare that same thing tonight. It's not just about having all the answers. It's not just about having all the answers to the prayers. But our eyes are upon you. God, let us take our positions. And for each one of us in this room, you've positioned each one of us uniquely. Let us know what our position is in this moment. And be faithful to be there to watch the deliverance of the Lord. If you're here tonight and you've never had a moment to acknowledge that inability, that insufficiency, to overcome sin and self, it begins by allowing Christ into your heart, by acknowledging that He is God. If you've never had that first step where you said, Jesus, enough of me, I want you. If that's you, raise your hand. 
never want you to leave this room without an opportunity to respond. Anyone at all. All right. So, Lord, we stand before you tonight. Needy. Humble. God, I pray that you would find soil in our lives and in this church that the seed of your word might come forth in power, signs, and wonders. And God's people said in agreement.